All right. Well, we are here uh, live uh, via Zoom uh, on, on this podcast with Congressman Mike Johnson. Uh, he is joining us remotely here today. And I want to appreciate him taking my time. For those who are listening, Congressman Mike Johnson uh, is from Northwest Louisiana and has a you know strong career in the legislature. And obviously, ever since from day one, he's been in the Congress, has really been an influential leader from day one. So, Mike, thank you so much for joining us here today. Hey, Stephen, great to be with you, my friend, and uh, appreciate all the work that you do and Lobby and the whole group. You, know, you guys are essential to everything that's happening, so uh, great to join you at any time. Well, uh, speaking of essential, it's essential that you are up there in D.C. right now because these are uh, interesting times up there in D.C. Obviously, change in administration, um, you know, lots of policies being rolled out, lots of them with huge price tags and big taxes to come with it. Give us your take on, I guess before we get into some of the details, the just the culture shift uh, that's going on in D.C. right now. And, and what's it like being up there kind of in the eye of the storm? It's a really toxic, counterproductive environment right now, Uh, you know, worse than it's ever been. And, you know, I've been in Congress, as you know, just a little over four years. But even in that amount of time, Stephen, I've I've told people back home that there's been just a a dramatic change in kind of the environment of Capitol Hill, where um, everything is devolved. It's kind of shirt, uh, skins versus um, shirts now, you know, as we used to do in the playground. It's, It's just each side has, you know, each team has picked a side and they there's very little collegiality. There's very little bipartisanship, anybody working together. There's not even the opportunity to do so. And right now you have kind of the radical left, really. I mean, you know, we try not to speak in terms of hyperbole, but that's what we have with this policy. You have the radical left side of the Democrat caucus that is running the show in Washington. They run the House, they run the Senate. And, and of course, President Biden and Kamala Harris in the White House, they, they will do the bidding of the of the far left. And so that's what we see. And so they're throwing everything at the wall right now. People back home ask all the time. I know they ask you where all, everybody's talking about it. Why are they going so far left so fast? And the answer, I think, is very simple. They uh, can do math as well as the rest of us. And they know that their days are numbered with this majority constituted as it is, that we are going to take the majority back, I'm convinced, in the 2022 election cycle. And so don't be surprised by anything you see right now. They're going to throw everything at the wall to see how much of it they might be able to get over the line to radically transform the country as they warned us about. And I think that explains a lot of the agenda. Well, so if they do feel that time clock, if you will, that shot clock, if you will, and they're trying to get as much uh, in as possible, let's start with, I guess, infrastructure. You know, obviously there, there's a big need out there for roads and bridges and infrastructure, but what the bill that's been laid at the at the feet of Congress is is much, much more than infrastructure. It's a, it's a huge price tag. Before we get into the merits of the bill itself, let's talk about the pay-fors. There's a pretty aggressive uh, tax increase in there. I know you've been pretty vocal on some of your concerns with that. Walk through a little bit about what the pay-fors in that bill are and why you're so concerned if those become, uh, to, to reality, what it could do to the economy. Well, you have to understand, and I have to explain this to people back home all the time as well. They, they ask about this. How can we afford to do this? I thought we had a big national debt. Oh, yes, indeed we do. It's about $28 trillion and counting, trillion with a T. We use the T word now, like we used to use the the billions, the billions, right. <laughs> the T word. It's it's a staggering number, and right now, as we're speaking, you and I know we've talked about this. Our our national debt has eclipsed GDP, gross domestic product, which is you know all the economic output of the of the country. Our debt is higher than that. It's about 102 percent, and if we continue on the trajectory that we're on, it's completely unsustainable. It will it will collapse our economy. I mean, if we if we stay on the road we're on right now, we wind up by 2050 with about a 260% debt to GDP ratio. I mean, obviously 
that we can't continue this way. So there's a lot of us in, in Washington that are ringing the bells and sounding the alarms. And we have been, I've been doing it since I got to Capitol Hill, uh, trying to bring recognition to this crisis because it is a crisis. And, and in the meantime, you have Biden and the Democrats and the, the socialists in the House and the radical left in the Senate, they, they will not even acknowledge the problem at all. Now they just wave it off with a hand, as you know, and they say, oh, well, modern monetary theory. Haven't you heard? The debt doesn't really matter. We shouldn't be concerned about that. It's just inflation's not a real concern. We don't need to be worried about the devaluation of the dollar. There's no reckoning for this. We can just spend with reckless abandon and the government can provide for everyone from cradle to grave. I mean, that <laughs> is literally, you know, what they're arguing, presenting right now. As, right. I mean, you think about this. In 100 days, the first 100 days of the Biden presidency, he's proposed $6 trillion. By some estimates, it's, it's closer to $8 trillion in new federal spending. It, it's more than in 100 days than has ever been spent in human history. I mean, not just the, the history of our country, anywhere, anytime, in any, any place adjusted for inflation. It's not even close. So we, we had the, um, the, the supposed COVID relief bill that they pushed through. That was almost $2 trillion, $1.9 trillion. And, and famously, infamously, only 9% of it went to actual COVID health concerns. The rest was told, you know, big government, big wish, liberal wish list items. Then they come over, over the line. Now they've got this $2.5 trillion infrastructure part one, the American Jobs Plan. And that's the one that has, you know, was supposed to have the, the real infrastructure as we think of it. But now everybody knows only 6% of the bill actually goes to roads and bridges. 6%. Bridges. That's unbelievable. It's cr- it's just crazy. And and when you divide it all out, by the way, amongst the 50 states, it's almost nothing, you know, to, to, to satisfy any of the needs or anything that we actually have to do. And then on top of that, then at the, you know, the joint session the other night, he came out with a whole other, you know, another $2 trillion, $1.8 trillion in spending for everything under the sun. And we can't afford to do this. This is counterproductive policy. But more than that, it's dangerous for the future of the country and the, the country that our children and our grandchildren are going to inherit. You know, I, I found it interesting. You know, there's a, in my previous life, I was on Capitol Hill for a better part of a decade. And, you know, when you're in Capitol Hill and you're inside the Beltway, you know, every day you're, you're, you're seeing these bills being debated. You're looking at the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times. You're in the middle of all this stuff. You, you know the issues. Now that I've moved away from that environment and I've been in Louisiana for a long time now, you realize that so many of these important issues, they don't always get down to, you know, Main Street type folks. And the consequences of these actions haven't really been felt. I mean, if, if, if stimulus checks are being put out, enhanced unemployment being put out, um, dollars are showing up in mailboxes, uh, inflation is now considered the thing of the past we don't do anymore, interest rates are being kept down. People don't feel the consequences of this type of borrow, 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 spend, spend, spend approach. And so it's harder for folks like you to go in there and make the argument for responsibility when out in the hinterlands, if you will. People, all they see is the benefit uh, of this approach. Uh, how hard is it to message in this moment in a way that can connect not just with your base and your constituents, but also people all across the country who need to be aware of what's going on there? Well, we, we have to do some basic civics 101, economics 101, kind of poli-sci 101, kind of a refresher course for people. That's what we do in town hall settings and public gatherings is to just draw people back to the reality of this. I mean, everyone knows intuitively because most people have to balance a budget at home. They've got to do their family's checkbook. You know, the government works the same way. The only difference is the government doesn't have any resources of its own. If it's going to put a dollar in one person's pocket, it has to take it from another person's pocket to do so. And so they're playing with all this funny money and it's really a, a scary thing. So I, our, concept, our, our challenge is 
Stephen, that we've got to be able to draw people to the facts and show them what this really means. When I'm in a town hall setting, sometimes I'll say, hey, everybody take out your smartphone. Now type in US debt clock, just Google that, okay? And pull <laughs> that up. And then we all look at it together and the, and the debt is going up so fast, you can't follow it with a naked eye. And I say, now look down to that column about three rows down and it says how much of that debt is owed by you individually and your children. Oh now you think about how fast it's, it's, it's growing and what that will mean for your kids, your grandkids. They will not have the same security that we have. They will not have the same opportunity that we have. They, you can't because it can't be both. And so as the government expands, which Biden is proposing in spades now, of course, um, your freedom contracts. It's, 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 there's an automatic response to that. And that is reality. And you cannot defy reality as much as the left wants to do it. We have to draw people back to that and show them what it means for them and, and for their future, immediate and long term. And it's a scary, scary thing. So I'll ask this question. Tell me if I'm right or wrong. Um, the margins are tight in Congress. You mentioned that there's a shot clock, if you will. So the Democrat majority wants to get as much as they can done in the next year and a half as, they, as possibly they can. Is budget reconciliation kind of the game plan for many of these big ticket item bills, whether it be infrastructure or the Family Act and the tax increases? And if so, you know what what tools do you have in the toolbox to be able to stop a uh, reconciliation approach if it's going to be a, a, a partisan effort? Yeah, so that's how they've governed thus far. I mean, you know, President Biden has governed by executive order and he's used his um, his accomplices and his lieutenants in the Congress to, you know, use budget reconciliation. And, and all that means those are big fancy words, uh, but basically it means that they're going, they're doing an end run around regular process. You know, when the founders put this system together, they, they had checks and balances and separation of powers and part of this deliberative process and the greatest deliberative body in the world is the U.S. Congress, is that there was supposed to be regular debate, regular order, a, a, an opportunity uh, for, for big substantive legislation like this to be, to be you know, arm wrestled over, that, um, that you could amend it with meaningful suggestions to improve it and all that. None of that is happening right now at all. You know, Capitol Hill is not Capitol Hill anymore. It's Fort Pelosi. It's surrounded by razor wire and troops and all that. We have to go through <laughs> magnetometers to go onto the House floor and vote. I mean, this is a, a serious crazy situation. You, crazy you have situation. to laugh because you're right to make the reference, but it's true. I mean, the, the nation's capital used to be known for a place where your your, your government wasn't just a, a by the people of the people, but it was very attainable. Is that your fingertips? You could walk in, you could see it, you could touch it, you could feel it. Now it, do, it, it resembles a fortress more than anything else. Well, one of the great foundational premises of our government is that you have the right to petition your government, air your grievances out with your duly elected right. representatives. Can't do that. You haven't been able to do that for over a year now in Washington because you can't actually come to Capitol Hill. It's a lonely place. It's like a ghost town. It's only members themselves. Just none of this, uh, Stephen, is what the founding fathers intended. And and the, the kind of the scary thing at the end of the day is that, you know, a constitutional republic like ours, we have the greatest nation in the history of the world. We're the most successful, most powerful, most free in all of human history. But there is no guarantee that this is going to last long enough for us to even pass it along to our kids, right? And, and Reagan said, freedom is not, you don't inherit it in the bloodstream. It has to be fought for and protected, which educate the next generation, pass it along to them that way. And, and uh, we're, we're, this is an imperiled system. And so you can't maintain a government of by and for the people if these basic foundational ideas are not maintained. And that's what's at issue right now. So that all the way back to your, your simple and very good question is, are they gonna try to use bud budget reconciliation to pass some of this, this crazy, these big ticket, big government wish list items, and they will try. The only thing, there are two things that are in the way of that. One is the Senate parliamentarian, because that's the 
probably the most powerful person in Washington right now, the Senate <laughs> parliamentarian determines whether you can bootstrap all this stuff onto the reg regular uh, budget process, which is just a fancy way of saying that you could get around regular process, right? They don't have right. to actually take it through the the, the, the the normal processes. And then the other thing is the filibuster, um, because if it gets past the Senate parliamentarian and they and they want to do things, you know, pack the court, give DC statehood, all you know, radical Green New Deal mandates, uh, the expansion of abortion rights, you name it. Um, the, the filibuster is what is protecting us. And the filibuster just basically means in simple terms, it takes 60 votes in the Senate to advance legislation instead of just 51. Thankfully, Joe Manchin and, uh, of West Virginia, Kirsten Sinema of Arizona, uh, maybe Mark Kelly of Arizona, there's a couple of, of moderate Democrats that are left in the Senate and they are not going along with it. And thankfully, uh, let's hope that that continues to be the case. Let's talk about one more issue that's going to land in that in that Senate as well as the House, obviously. But, you know, you are a constitutional scholar. You're well known for that and having a, a, a deep understanding of that branch of government. What's your take on this discussion about the Supreme Court and, and whether to expand that number? Well, listen, if you read the founders and you study what the founders did and they, their genius was to give us the three branches of government to separate powers in this way and to give the judicial branch, the judiciary, independence. And, and they wrote eloquently about this. Hamilton, you know, Alexander Hamilton, for example, said it was an, an essential component of maintaining our form of government is he had to have justice had to be blind. You know, if you go to the Supreme Court and you visit the, the, the court building, equal justice under law is carved into the marble of, you know, the freeze above your head when you walk in. The, the symbol of, of our system of justice is, is lady justice. And, you know, she's blindfolded and she's holding a balanced scale and she has a sword in the other hand. There's symbolism to all this. But the idea that justice is blind, and so all of that is in jeopardy with this idea that we would pack the courts. If you do that, you politicize the third branch of government. You make the court, instead of an independent judicial uh, branch, you make them kind of a super legislature. And they're subject then to the whims of whoever wins the presidency. We'll have whiplash back and forth across the country on critical constitutional questions. And, and ultimately people will lose faith in the institution. And I, I just close with this and tell you that I, I thought it was so important that there are notable scholars on the left, uh, lions of the left who have said over the years that this is a boneheaded idea, including the current president before he changed his tune. That was his own phrase that he used, uh, but Justice Ginsburg was opposed to it. Most recently, Justice Breyer is a, one of the big you know, liberals on the court right now. He was speaking at Harvard Law School about a month ago and he said, what I am concerned about, what we fear, is the, the increasing loss of confidence that the people have in their institutions. And he was afraid, and, it, and continues to be afraid, that packing the court would just be a silver bullet right to the heart of that. And, and we all think that. We all are concerned about it. we got to fight it vigorously. Well, I guess we'll wrap it up and, and end this one with the term boneheaded. You mentioned it earlier, and it, it sounds like that might be the theme of the day. But um, with that, look, you, you have been a, a strong leader in Louisiana, obviously a strong leader in D.C. as well, not just on the positions that you take uh, strong stances on, but also on the very concept of civility and being able to stand strong what you believe in, but also having a civil discourse. Uh, we need more of that in D.C., and you've been a leader on that front for a number of years. So, Congressman Mike Johnson, thank you so much for uh, spending time with us today. Thank you for what you do every day in D.C. and come visit us again sometime soon. Let's get an update as, uh, the, as the year goes on on what's going on in Congress. Can't wait to do it, my friend. I appreciate what you do. Keep it up. Thanks for having me.